Section 17 of A Visit to the Holy Land. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 9 of A Visit to the Holy Land, Egypt and Italy, Part 1. By Ida L. Pfeiffer. June 8th. At five o'clock in the morning we departed, and bent our course towards the Dead Sea. After a ride of two hours we could see it, apparently at such a short distance, that we thought half an hour at the most would bring us there. But the road wound betwixt the mountains, sometimes ascending, sometimes descending, so that it took us another two hours to reach the shore of the lake. All around us was sand. The rocks seemed pulverized. We ride through a labyrinth of monotonous sand-heaps and sand-hills, behind which the robber tribes of Arabs and Bedouins frequently lurk, making this part of the journey exceedingly unsafe. Before we reach the shore, we ride across a plain, consisting, like the rest, of deep sand, so that the horses sink to the fetlocks at every step. On the whole of our way we had not met with a single human being, with the exception of the horde of Bedouins whom we had found encamped in the river-bed. This was a fortunate circumstance for us, for the people whom the traveller meets during these journeys are generally unable to resist the temptation of seizing upon his goods, so that broken bones are frequently the result of such meetings. The day was very hot, thirty-three degrees, Reamer. We encamped in the hot sand on the shore, under the shelter of our parasols, and made our breakfast of hard-boiled eggs, a piece of bad bread, and some lukewarm water. I tasted the sea-water, and found it much more bitter, salt, and pungent than any I have met with elsewhere. We all dipped our hands into the lake, and afterwards suffered the heat of the air to dry them without having first rinsed them with fresh water. Not one of us had to complain that this brought forth an itching or an eruption on our hands, as many travellers have asserted. The temperature of the water was thirty-three degrees reamer. In color it is a pale green. Near the shore the water is to a certain extent transparent, but as it deepens it seems turbid, and the eye can no longer pierce the surface. We could not even see far across the water, for a light mist seemed to rest upon it, thus preventing us from forming a good estimate of its breadth. To judge from what we could distinguish, however, the Dead Sea does not appear to be very broad. It may rather be termed an oblong lake, shut in by mountains than a sea. Not the slightest sign of life can be detected in the water, not a ripple disturbs its sleeping surface. A boat of any kind is, of course, quite out of the question. Some years since, however, an Englishman made an attempt to navigate this lake. For this purpose he caused a boat to be built, but did not progress far in his undertaking. A sickness came upon him, he was carried to Jerusalem, and died soon after he had made the experiment. It is rather a remarkable fact that, up to the present moment, no Englishman has been found who was sufficiently weary of his life to imitate his countryman's attempt. Stunted fragments of driftwood, most probably driven to shore by tempests, lay scattered everywhere around. We could, however, discover no fields of salt. Neither did we see smoke rising, or find the exhalations from the sea unpleasant. These phenomena are perhaps observed at a different season of the year to that in which I visited the Dead Sea. On the other hand, I saw not only separate birds, but sometimes even flights of twelve or fifteen. 
Vegetation also existed here to a certain extent. Not far from the shore, I noticed in a little ravine a group of eight acicular-leaved trees. On this plain there were also some wild shrubs bearing creepers, and a description of tall shrub, not unlike our bramble, bearing a plentiful crop of red berries, very juicy and sweet. We all ate largely of them, and I was the more surprised at finding these plants here, as I had found it uniformly stated that animal and vegetable life was wholly extinct on the shores of the Dead Sea. Five cities, of which not a trace now remains, once lay in the plain now filled by this sea. Their names were Sodom, Gomorrah, Adama, Zeboan, and Zona. A feeling of painful emotion, mingled with awe, took possession of my soul as I thought of the past, and saw how the works of proud and mighty nations had vanished away, leaving behind them only a name and a memory. It was a relief to me when we prepared, after an hour's rest, to quit this scene of dreary desolation. For about an hour and a half we rode through an enormous waste covered with trailing weeds, towards the verdant banks of the Jordan, which are known from a distance by the beautiful, blooming green of the meadows that surround it. We halted in the so-called Jordan Vale, where our Saviour was baptized by St. John. The water of the Jordan is of a dingy clay color. Its course is very rapid. The breadth of this stream can scarcely exceed twenty-five feet, but its depth is said to be considerable. The moment our Arab companions reached the bank, they flung themselves, heated as they were, into the river. Most of the gentlemen followed their example, but less precipitately. I was fain to be content with washing my face, hands, and feet. We all drank to our hearts content, for it was long since we had obtained water so cool and fresh. I filled several tin bottles, which I had brought with me for this purpose from Jerusalem, with water from the Jordan, and had them soldered down on my return to the holy city. This is the only method with which I am acquainted for conveying water to the farthest countries without its turning putrid. We halted for a few hours beneath the shady trees, then pursued our journey across the plain. Suddenly a disturbance arose among our Arab protectors. They spoke very anxiously with one another, and continually pointed to some distant object. On inquiring the reason why they were so disturbed, we were told that they saw robbers. We strained our eyes in vain, even with the help of good spy-glasses we could discover nothing, and already began to suspect our escort of having cried wolf without reason, or merely to convince us that we had not taken them with us for nothing. But in about a quarter of an hour we could dimly discern figures emerging, one by one, from the far, far distance. Our Bedouins prepared for the combat, and advised us to take the opposite road while they advanced to encounter the enemy. But all the gentlemen wished to take part in the expedition, and joined the Bedouins lusting for battle. The whole cavalcade rode off at a rapid pace, leaving Count Berchtold and myself behind. But when our steeds saw their companions galloping off in such a fiery style, they scorned to remain idly behind and without consulting our inclinations in the least, they ran of a pace which fairly took our breath away. The more we attempted to restrain their headlong course, the more rapidly did they pursue their career, so that there appeared every prospect of our becoming the first instead of the last among the company. 
but when the enemy saw such a determined troop advancing to oppose them, they hurried off without awaiting our onset, and left us masters of the field. So we returned in triumph to our old course, when suddenly a wild boar, with its hopeful family, rushed across our path. Away we all went in chase of the poor animals. Count Wratislaw succeeded in cutting down one of the young ones with his sabre, and it was solemnly delivered up to the cook. No further obstacles opposed themselves to our march, and we reached our resting-place for the night without adventure of any kind. On this occasion I had an opportunity of seeing how the Arabs can manage their horses, and how they can throw their spears and lances in full career, and pick up the lances as they fly by. The horses, too, appear quite different to when they are travelling at their usual sleepy pace. At first sight these horses look anything but handsome. They are thin, and generally walk at a slow pace, with their heads hanging down. But when skilful riders mount these creatures, they appear as if transformed. Lifting their small, graceful heads with the fiery eyes, they throw out their slender feet with matchless swiftness, and bound away over stock and stone with a step so light, and yet so secure, that accidents very rarely occur. It is quite a treat to see the Arabs exercise. Those who escorted us good-naturedly went through several of their maneuvers for our amusement. From the valley of the Jordan to the Sultan's well, in the Vale of Jericho, is a distance of about six miles. The road winds, from the commencement of the valley, through a beautiful natural park of fig-trees and other fruit-trees. Here, too, was the first spot where the eye was gladdened by the sight of a piece of grass, instead of sand and shingle. Such a change is doubly grateful to one who has been travelling so long through the barren, sandy desert. The village lying beside the Sultan's well looks most deplorable. The inhabitants seem rather to live under than above the ground. I went into a few of these hollows. I do not know how else to designate these little stone-heap houses. Many of them are entirely destitute of windows, the light finding its way through the hole left for an entrance. The interiors contained only straw mats and a few dirty mattresses, not stuffed with feathers, but with leaves of trees. All the domestic utensils are comprised in a few trenchers and water-jugs. The poor people were clothed in rags. In one corner some grain and a number of cucumbers were stored up. A few sheep and goats were roaming about in the open air. A field of cucumbers lies in front of every house. Our Bedouins were in high glee at finding this valuable vegetable in such abundance. We encamped beside the well, under the vault of heaven. From the appearance of the valley in its present state, it is easy to conclude, in spite of the poverty of the inhabitants and the air of desolation spread over the farther landscape, that it must once have been very blooming and fertile. On the right the naked mountains extend in the direction of the Dead Sea. On the left rises the hill on which Moses completed his earthly career, and from which his great spirit fled to a better world. On the face of the mountain three caves are visible, and in the center one we were told the Saviour had dwelt during his preparation in the wilderness before undertaking his mission of a teacher. High above these caves towers the summit of the rock from which Satan promised to give our Lord the sovereignty of all the earth if he would fall down and worship him. Baron Vreda, Mr. Bartlett, and myself were desirous of seeing the interior of one of these caves, and started with this intention. 
but no sooner did one of our Bedouins perceive what we were about, than he came running up in hot haste to assure us that the whole neighborhood was unsafe. We therefore turned back, the more willingly as the twilight, or rather sunset, was already approaching. Twilight in these latitudes is of very short duration. At sunrise the shades of night are changed into the blaze of day as suddenly as the daylight vanishes into night. Our supper consisted of a rather smoky pilau, which we nevertheless relished exceedingly, for people who have eaten nothing throughout the day but a couple of hard-boiled eggs are seldom fastidious about their fare at night. Besides, we now had beautiful fresh water from the spring, and cucumbers in abundance, though without vinegar or oil. But to what purpose would the unnatural mixture have been? Whoever wishes to travel should first strive to disencumber himself of what is artificial, and then he will get on capitally. The ground was our bed, and the dark blue ether, with its myriads of stars, our canopy. On this journey we had not taken a tent with us. The aspect of the heavens is most beautiful here in Syria. By day the whole firmament is of a clear azure, not a cloud sullies its perfect brightness, and at night it seems spangled with a far greater number of stars than in our northern climes. Count Zichy ordered the servants to call us betimes in the morning, in order that we might set out before sunrise. For once the servants obeyed, in fact they more than obeyed, for they roused us before midnight, and we began our march. So long as we kept to the plain, all went well, but whenever we were obliged to climb a mountain, one horse after another began to stumble and to stagger, so that we were in continual danger of falling. Under these circumstances it was unanimously resolved that we should halt beneath the next declivity, and there await the coming of daylight. June ninth, At four o'clock the reveille was beaten for the second time. We had now slept for three hours in the immediate neighborhood of the Dead Sea, a circumstance of which we were not aware until daybreak. Not one of our party had noticed any noxious exhalation arising from the water, Still less had we been seized with headaches or nausea, an effect stated by several travellers to be produced by the smell of the Dead Sea. Our journey homewards now progressed rapidly, though for three or four hours we were obliged to travel over most formidable mountain roads and through crooked ravines. In one of the valleys we again came upon a Bedouin's camp. We rode up to the tents and asked for a draught of water, instead of which these people very kindly gave us some dishes of excellent buttermilk. In all my life I never partook of anything with so keen a relish as that with which I drank this cooling beverage, after my fatiguing ride in the burning heat. Count Vichy offered our entertainers some money, but they would not take it. The chief stepped forward and shook several of us by the hand in token of friendship, for, from the moment when a stranger has broken bread with Bedouins or Arabs, or has applied to them for protection, he is not only safe among their tribe, but they would defend him with life and limb from the attacks of his enemies. Still, it is not advisable to meet with them on the open plain, so contradictory are their manners and customs. We were now advancing with great strides towards a more animated, if not a more picturesque, landscape and frequently met and overtook small caravans. One of these had been attacked the previous evening, the poor Arabs had offered a brave resistance, and had beaten off the foe, but one of them was lying half-dead upon his camel, with a ghastly shot-wound in his head. 
Nimble, long-eared goats were diligently searching among the rocks for their scanty food, and a few grottoes or huts of stone announced to us the proximity of a little town or village. Right thankful were we to emerge safely from these fearful deserts into a less sterile and more populous region. We passed through Bethany, and I visited the cave in which it is said that Lazarus slumbered before he came forth alive at the voice of the Redeemer. Then we journeyed on to Jerusalem by the same road on which the Saviour travelled, when the Jewish people showed their attachment and respect, for the last time, by strewing olive and palm branches in his way. How soon was this scene of holy rejoicing changed to the ghastly spectacle of the Redeemer's torture and death! Towards two o'clock in the afternoon we arrived safely at Jerusalem, and were greeted with a hearty welcome by our kind hosts. A few days after my return from the foregoing excursion, I left Jerusalem forever. A calm and peaceful feeling of happiness filled my breast, and ever shall I be thankful to the Almighty that He has vouchsafed me to behold these realms. Is this happiness dearly purchased by the dangers, fatigues, and privations attendant upon it? Surely not. And what, indeed, are all the ills that checker our existence here below to the woes endured by the blessed founder of our religion? The remembrances of these holy places, and of him who lived and suffered here, shall surely strengthen and console me, wherever I may be, and whatever I may be called upon to endure. End of section 17